0: Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I am joined by two people who know absolutely everything there is to know about falconing and newt mating, Tim McIntosh and <laughs> Heidi White. Tim, Heidi, welcome back to the show. <laughs> I got Thank that you, right. David. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, you know a lot about you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Newt mating and falconing. I figured you guys are. Yeah. Newt awesome. or newt? newt. <laughs> Did
1: that just get dark? Sorry about that. <laughs>
0: No comment. We're gonna move on. We're gonna move right. on. Time to move uh-huh. on. I'm not sure who's listening, so we don't want to have to give a disclaimer at the beginning of the episode. Hey, we are here to talk about the remains of the day. Kaz Ishiguro's novel, Remains of the Day. Have either of you read a an Ishiguro novel before?
1: Never.
2: I started first. reading. Uh, what's the What's the other one, David? The kind of sci-fi. Thing. Never let me go. I I started and I kind of I flailed and i dropped it but i didn't i didn't try very hard Mm -hmm. (laughs) so this is is my first shot okay
0: yeah um never let me go is graham and i both have that as one of our all-time favorites you love that book
1: whoa really i didn't know that now i'm jotting it down
0: um yeah so he wrote um the remains of the day he wrote when we were orphans which is kind of a Crime mystery novel. um, Never Let Me Go. It's kind of a sci fi ish uh, novel. Uh, The Buried Giant, which is a very anachronistic sort of King Arthur. The take on the I guess um, the Arthurian legends sort of so it's <laughs> like the language is very anachronistic it's a very challenging book to read for me anyway some people love it I had a very hard time with it um, in, just in terms of buying into the anachronisms of it but um, he's, a, he's a great writer as, as I think everybody is beginning to see when they uh, when they're f- commenting on Facebook that whoops I just finished the novel <laughs> and we haven't even yeah, done our right. first episode so that's pretty cool to see right. people enjoying it
2: That was I. am listening to it, or I listen to it, and I own a copy of it also. And I had to force myself to stop. I just really had to say, put the book down, Macintosh. (laughs) Well,
0: so, I mean, we're gonna obviously we're gonna talk about this for the next, you know, several weeks. But but why is that? What 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 about it that you're kind of that first impression? of it. Well I guess what was the first impression of it that you were having that was saying keep turning the pages because I I was a little uh, I'm not surprised people are saying that they're going and finishing it right away because it's a it's a very readable novel. But I wouldn't necessarily consider it a page turner so to speak. So I'm curious what yeah. is it for you that that makes it stand out and makes you just want to keep keep going, you keep pursuing it.
2: This is a little bit of a cheat, but I've seen the movie and the movie I was telling you, Heidi off the air is so incredibly good. Yeah, it's good. so good. Um, and I think there I'm, so I'm reading the book through the lens of the movie and of course it's very different. And I, it, part of the reason is I kind of a little bit know what's coming. And part of the reason I'm moving so swiftly through it is because the things that are different in the book are really intriguing Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I want to see what that, where that thread goes. And so, I read another five pages that I shouldn't be reading. <laughs> That's why I'm pushing ahead.
0: I mean, I don't think anyone's going to like get mad at you if you if you read it. It's like you say you shouldn't well, read it. It's okay. You, you know, we're not
2: going to be mad at you. It's fine. But th- I mean, this happened with the Power and the Glory. I would read ahead, and then I would forget where we had stopped. And so, I remember <laughs> one time you guys were like, "Dude, we haven't gotten there yet." I was like, "Oh yeah." So I don't want that to happen on this one.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, the movie, yeah, the movie's Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. It's a Merchant Ivory production from what the mid 90s. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's cons- 93. It looks like it's considered a classic of the Merchant Ivory sort of uh, genre sort of Merchant Ivory era. Have you seen the movie, Heidi?
1: No, I know nothing about this story. All I know is the reading that we've done this week.
0: Mm, Okay. Well, we're going to dive into that quickly. But like I said a minute ago before we started recording, I was handed a paper. I'm supposed to read it. So let's see. What is it that we are brought to you by this week? Um, Okay. So this is is a new copy for me here. But it turns out that we are brought to you by... Can we get a drum roll, Tim? We're brought to you by the Lost Tools of Writing this week. Um, because we are very we are very excited to announce that the Lost Tools of Writing level three is about to come out. We are finishing it up now. It'll be wow. available for purchase in February. So level that three That is
1: super exciting. I'm yeah, thrilled about that.
0: It's it's um Matt Bianco's been working really hard on it for like probably
2: a hundred years. Life, his hundred years, yeah.
0: A long time. But level three follows up where um the persuasive essay in level one and then the judicial essay in level two began. So, this is now the deliberative address that you'd be working through. So, as a writing program, it introduces new schemes and tropes, you know, all the things that you were used to in the, the first two levels, but more of it, you know, on a, on a higher level and more tools for writing strong paragraphs. But one of the things that we've really pursued here with level three is Lost Tools as a thinking program and taking that like really deep, you know much deeper than even the first two the first two levels. So from that perspective, it's also introducing a lot of elements of logic to help writers discover hidden assumptions and to evaluate their arguments on a, on a really mature level. So we're pleased to bring you the next step in your student's journey through classical rhetoric with the Lost Schools of Writing Level 3. Be on the lookout for that. We're going to have a big sale at a secret date coming up in the next four weeks, shall we say. So be on the lookout for that if you're interested. That gives us Level 1, 2, and 3, which is the the perfect sort of uh, curricular structure for say seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, if you're interested in that. Um, and if you have any questions about that or want to learn more, you can head over to losttoolsofwriting.com or you can find the Lost Tools of Writing uh, Facebook group and there's lots of discussion going on there. And uh, Matt Bianco will always be happy to answer questions about uh, the purpose of this level three and and how it can uh, continue help you continue your uh, not just teaching writing, but also uh, working on thinking with your students. So yeah, law schools of, of Writing, losttoolsofwriting.com if you want more. And, and of course, if you're already a user and you want support, uh, head over to the Facebook group. There's lots of good support available to you over there. So, all right. We've done, we've taken care of the business. Do, I read the copy that was passed on to me. And, uh, well
2: done, David. Added on of
0: my own thoughts as we went. So <laughs> let's talk remains of the day. Uh, Heidi, you said, you're new to it. You've only read as much as... Mm-hmm as you were assigned for this week, you've only done the homework. (laughs) So Tim just kind of said, you know, his first impressions are very tied to the movie and he's enjoying seeing what's new and the world being expanded from what he saw in the movie. What were your first impressions uh, of this book? Did you, are you as taken with it as as everyone else's?
1: Yes. So far I, I'm delighted with it. I think it's just beautifully crafted. I expect we'll talk about that quite a bit. Uh, between the three of us. Um, There's a lot of subtext going on, but, and it seems to be pointing in certain directions, but of course I haven't seen any of it unfold yet.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So I, but the writing's really lovely. And, you know, several people mentioned this already on the Facebook group, but, you know, of course I meet immediately making connections with um, the same things that other people are—the Wooster novels, you know, mm-hmm. Woodhouse and Downton Abbey—and just kind of this contemporary obsession with the ceremony of English country life, <laughs> um, which yeah. is a fascinating turn of event considering the fragmentation of our culture, right? But there's mm-hmm. something about it that just draws people in, and so I'm I'm captivated by. It. I'm excited to see where it goes.
0: Mm. Yeah, I I was thinking that. You, you mentioned the the Woodhouse, the Jeeves and Wooster factor, and I was thinking another name for this novel could have just been stiff upper lip, <laughs> which is like the, the classic, you know, Woodhouse thing that that uh, Jeeves is always talking about, and Bertie's always sort of trying to um, live out, but very poorly. Um, right. There's a couple things. It's,
2: go, 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 Tim, go, go. It's one of these I noticed in a couple of the the back cover blurbs people referring to the book as a comedy of manners Hmm. and because that really surprised me because when I think comedy of manners, I think Jeeves and Wooster, and I, and maybe even something like faulty towers, you know, the old BBC show or something like that. And this book does not strike me as a comedy of manners, even though there are very funny things in those opening two chapters, but knowing the story from the movie, I thought, gosh, I don't know what a comedy of manners is, I guess, if this is a comedy of manners.
0: <laughs> there, yeah, well, I was going to say, one of the things we should probably talk about off the bat is that there are a number of sort of archetypal forms at play here that, that I think Ishiguro is uh, playing with. And then I don't want to say subverting because that's such a... That word has connotations. I don't think that he's saying that the forms are negative. I think he's just playing with certain forms, certain archetypal forms. You know, we have the road novel, for example, you know, the classic, I mean, the classic, the classic, the most classic of all stories, right? is like right. the road, the road, the journey novel, right? It's the, mm-hmm. it's the Odyssey, Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn. It's this Joseph, you know, it's it's you go you're you're on the road somewhere and, and, mm-hmm. uh, if there's somewhere you're supposed to be going or maybe you are somewhere you're supposed to be running from. Right. And so it's certainly playing with that. And then that the other one is, yeah, the comedy of manners. And so Heidi, when you think of a comedy of manners, do you, what do you think of, how do you define that?
1: I think of Jane Austen right off the bat. Uh-huh. Um, but i the, and see, I know so little about this novel that I couldn't possibly speak to that at this point. I don't know if it's going to be funny, like you said, Tim. there's funny moments in there right. uh, his difficulty with banter is funny, his inability like there's there's these moments of hilarity, but there's there's certainly no farce in this at all yet if there's yeah. even in fact it seems. Like there's this underlying pathos and this internal disconnection between the souls somehow. Like there's there there's more. I feel more of a sense of I don't want to say impending doom. That seems too hmm. strong, but more like a journey of the soul about to take place. Hmm. There's obviously so many blind spots in the in, inner life of this man already. Mm-hmm. So that I'm expecting more of that. When I think of a comedy of manners, I kind of think of. That idea of manners, but underneath there's all this irony and subtext, and satire. either it goes, yeah, either it goes to satire or farce. That's kind yeah. of more of what I think of a comedy of manners, but I do associate it absolutely with English aristocracy right off the bat. That's the first kind of social uh, environment I think of when I think of in a comedy of manners. So that's certainly here. Tim
0: when you in reading these first two sections this the prologue and then day one, do you yeah. see any areas where 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 maybe it drifts into satire or where Ishiguro is borrowing the elements of satire and, and using them do you, do you see that at all the
2: only thing that the only thing that I could think of is Heidi mentioned this the um where the butler Stevens isn't quite sure what to do with his new master's banter,
0: his sense of humor you no. Know,
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, his sense of humor. It, Stevens is so ill-prepared to even know how, how to respond in the proper way that he just kind of freezes up except for one failed attempt and doesn't banter. And he wishes that he could speak to some of his colleagues about this. And In the old days, you could talk to your colleagues about this sort of awkward predicament, but there's no one around anymore. That's as close as I came to seeing satire. Yeah. I always can I add one thing to Heidi's definition? Well, I don't even know if it's adding one thing. I think it's it's satire because it is a it's a critical view of the society that the people are within. Maybe, Heidi, you kind of alluded to this. No,
1: I'm vigorously nodding. I didn't allude to that. And then I've just been sitting here thinking, I never said anything about the society. So thank you.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So that part of it, I think that part of it, I can absolutely see the comedy of manners, but not in the same way that it's that, it's not a playful disrespect, like. Um, the Wooster novels Mm -hmm. which seem to be kind of like really poking you know the eye of the English aristocracy Mm -hmm. this is something different I think it is not a playful mocking I think it's something that's much more serious Mm -hmm. I think it's going to end up being gravely serious Mm -hmm. by the end of the book
0: Okay, well, we just sent Tim out because everyone here would have heard Tim's crackling there, and we sent him out, and then now he's back. So hopefully, you won't hear Tim crackling anymore. Maybe Songs cackling. But yeah, <laughs> right. We, we know Tim spends most of these shows just cackling. So, um, <laughs> see, uh, case in point. Yeah, Heidi mentioned something um, before the before we sent you out, um, which sounds like.
1: I know. So we send him timeout. Timeout, Tim.
0: (laughs) We send him to the corner. You mentioned something (laughs) about kind of a journey of the soul. I think that was you, Uh Heidi. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I love about the craftsmanship in this novel is the way he manages to, you know, it's kind of a simple story, right? As man goes off and then he's remembering his life at each different at different points of the day on this little journey, Um, and he's reflecting on his career and what it means to be a butler, what it means to be English, what it means to be a good person, you know, all these different things that he's going to be thinking about. Um, sp- spoiler alert, he's going to think a lot about what it means to be a good butler. Um, <laughs> and uh, he he manages to sort of... Ishiguro, that is, manages to to do what you're talking about there when you mention the idea of a journey of the soul. He He manages to do that sort of couched in this, in these... Um, these reflections about all these other people and he's constantly thinking about his place i think in both the society at large which is where the you know the the society part that you guys were just talking about comes up and then also he's thinking about that in terms of his own career and in in terms of the um in terms of the 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 unit that is the house that he's in charge of and so I love the way it plays out it's the, yes it's this road this road story where he's finally getting some freedom and he's seen this country he's never seen before and so there's something very there's some pathos even in that idea. Like he's been not literally cooped up, but he's been attending to his duties for so many years that that he hasn't had the freedom to go do what he's doing now. And so there is some pathos just in that freedom and what it's allowing him to do. It's allowing him to see the countryside, but it also seems to be freeing his mind to reflect on his place. But then it also allows him to reflect on his place within the society at large. And then also the the purpose of the, the house itself, and I think all those layers that are that are in play here, um, are are examples of how good of a novelist Ishiguro is because it seems simple on the surface, but then that's where all that subtext comes out that you're talking about, Heidi.
1: Mm-hmm. Is that
0: right. what you're talking about when you're talking about the subtext?
1: Yes. Well, I think there, I that is exactly what I'm talking about. That there's a statement there's there's something hidden there's something lurking behind his words and that is i think beautifully crafted in both of the sections that we read this week kind of that you you, several people on facebook mentioned i um what's her name who's he wants to go see I'm Miss just Kenton. blanking, right? Miss Kenton, right? And here's a great example of subtext. Here, he's talking on page six in my book. It's just the second page of the novel. Uh, he's talking about um, how he didn't really take Mister Faraday's suggestion seriously, but then he remembered Miss Kenton's letter, her first in almost seven years. If one discounts the Christmas cards, but let me make it immediately clear what I mean by this. What I mean to say is that Miss Kenton's letter set off a certain chain of ideas to do with professional matters here at Darlington Hall. And I would underline that it was a preoccupation with these very same professional matters that led me to consider anew my employer's kindly meant suggestion. So he uses the word professional two times in the same sentence, mm-hmm. which seems a little bit Shakespearean, right? Methinks the lady death yeah, protests right. too much, exactly. right? <laughs> That's really clear right at the beginning. There, there is Here is a man who knows a lot of things, but he may not really know himself. He's either hiding even in, uh, this is first person, so it's intended to be self-revelatory, mm-hmm. but right yeah. here we see immediately that there's something he's either unwilling to face or unwilling to tell. so that's curious. Uh, I I think,
0: I think that's, and that's kind of what I think I was trying to say a second ago that he has been so tied up in the, I don't know, I don't want to say, I guess it's just like the everyday, the quotidian aspects of running this place and doing his duty that he hasn't, he hasn't reflected, he hasn't kind of opened up his own soul in a way that, and I think the going on this trip is allowing him to do that. It's not just that he's seeing the countryside, but it's that he is his. It's allowing him to to it's a open a personal up his mind. odyssey yeah. of
1: some kind, right? And that exactly. And then the second chapter that we read, day one, uh, this the, his obsession with the idea of dignity, which I mean, everyone would agree that dignity is a good thing, but is he using dignity in a way that really just means disconnection of his emotions from his The ceremony of his life right Mm -hmm. so there's Mm -hmm. there's all of these questions raised at the very beginning that it's very obvious this is not a straightforward novel if you're going to read this for the plot you might be disappointed there's so much going on underneath that you have to dig into that is clearly going to to work on multiple levels the personal level in the soul of stevens and then I, i and then also the to speak into the society in which he finds himself a part of
0: Hmm. tim i've got a question for you related to that unless you wanted to add to that
2: well i i just what i see as this dilemma that's formed through the subtext of the opening two sections that we read is that mr stevens is very devoted to a moral code it's Hmm. of the utmost important to him to keep this moral code but this code is very strongly bound up in his role within the house as a butler. And I, I wonder if the big dilemma of the book is what happens when someone cannot think of their code outside of the role that they play within this little society? Huh? Because that will be... A, that will be a huge problem for Stevens going forward. And I think one of the things that I think one of the ways in which it might be um, tempting to read this book, and I think it might be a little bit too shallow of a ra- way to read this book, is that um, Stevens is his afraid. To let his heart go and to express his true feelings. I mean, I think that's, that's true. I think that's going to be like, we're, you're already kind of seeing this exactly yeah, in the passage I mean, that Heidi just read. He gets this letter from Mrs. Kenton. We find out a little bit later, boy. There's some energy between he and Mrs. Kenton, but how does he frame this letter that he got from her, the first letter he's gotten from her in seven years? A professional matter. It's, it's a professional, professional matter. Mm-hmm. And so he well, confines everything to that, that role that he's playing. But I think hmm. it's gonna be tempting to see um to read the book as uh a romance, a a a gosh, not a blighted romance, a stunted romance which there's part of that in there. But I think that the scope of the book is, is bigger than a stunted romance. Hmm. I
0: love that, that Heidi brought this professionalism thing up and how it shows up so early. And I love what you're saying, because then that ties into the end of day one evening when he's talk, when he's thinking back about dignity, because he Mm -hmm. talks about, he talks about, um, he said he's defining dignity and he says, dignity yeah. has to do crucially with a butler's ability not to abandon the professional being he inhabits. Like that phrase, there, yeah. "the professional being he inhabits" is like that's the core of this book. That that central idea, I think, is the, at least it's um, it seems mm-hmm. to be based on these first few chapters. Lesser butlers, he says, will abandon their professional being for the private one at the least provocation. And mm-hmm. he goes on to say, they wear their professionalism as a decent gentleman will wear, wear his suit. He will not let ruffians or circumstance tear it off him in the public gaze. This, he's talking about a good butler here. He will discard it when and only when he wills to do so. And this will invariably when he be when he is entirely alone. It is, as I say, a matter of dignity. And then he talks about how there's certain people that don't make good butlers, right? He's talking about quote continentals that are unable (laughs) to be butlers because they are, as a breed, incapable of emotional restraint. And Tim, you just talked about the idea of expressing emotions, right?
1: He says the
0: English are the English are are, only the English are capable of this sort of restraint. And so, at least (laughs) at the beginning of the novel, here as he's setting off on his trip, this this highest good is that emotional restraint. It's a good thing. It's a it's a virtue to not express what's your feeling to be, to, to, Uh to not take off the clothes of that of duty is essentially what he's saying there. And that's just an example, but it's, it's what you're saying there. He's, his thought is embodying what you, what, what you're saying there.
2: And, and I think because the opposite of that, um, the opposite of kind of professionalism doesn't show one's emotions it will be very tempting to say aha this is a book about its opposite right Mm -hmm. the kind of like romantic flourishing of the individual um stymied Uh in a role in a society but i think that that would be a mistake (laughs) i'm just kind of like warning the readers that um there's part of that that's true, but I think that the our author is dealing with a theme that's even even bigger than that. And mm. I feel like this has become kind of like a hobby horse for me because I brought up The Course of Love. When we all got together, we're talking about our favorite <laughs> books, and The Course of Love is so critical of this like, kind of, like, romantic notion that so many Westerners have. So, you know, you guys can... Kind kind of grade me and be like, yeah, Tim is really like, you know, beating the stick against romanticism again. But I think (laughs) that it's so, it's such a strong inclination, kind of like a a pre-philosophical inclination in American society, that it's easy to default into it. Even people who are kind of like a little bit, might be a little bit suspicious of it, it's easy to just kind of default into it and say, um, Well, this is the story that's being told. It's a story of kind of like an individual unleashing himself from the entrapments of, you know, duty and society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And as I've said, now probably it's the fourth time just something bigger is going on in the book. Mm -hmm. Man, I'm starting to sound a little bit, do you guys ever hear yourself and think, wow, you're starting to sound like an advertisement of yourself? (laughs) I have
0: you ever <laughs> talked in public for more than like 4 hours? If so, then yes, you know this feeling.
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, and what's I was thinking this week, and even more as we're talking, so David and I are also talking about Henry V, Tim, on the plays the thing. And which is deals and grapples with this same exact issue, right? What does it mean to be a man and to be a king? What does it yeah. mean to be a man and to be a butler? That there's that sounds kind of silly, but it's, it's a grand institution in England. And that is a very big deal. Mm. And so to your yeah. point, yeah. it can't just be throw it all out as you said unleash yourself like i love that verb that's a strong verb that that idea of throwing off the shackles of the hierarchy you know smash the patriarchy that th- this book seems even from the very beginning way too subtle the phrase you used when you described the movie to me was lovely you said it was delicate as lace mm. tim and i i think i'm i see there's just this this weaving yeah. That's happening, right? And you have to pay pay attention to that honor the fact that that's very delicate. Yeah. is what I hear you yeah. saying. Um and let it let it be kind of a subtle unfolding of of somebody grappling with these things that actually matter on both sides. You know, in one of
2: this book in the movie, I think the reason that it's so powerful for me is that I love stories about people that change their hmm. minds which everybody changes their mind every day about something but Stevens is grappling grappling with a total life world that he is in and he has got to face he has got he's going to be asking himself what exactly is happening in this life world that i'm in it's not changing his mind about what his favorite dish is or what his favorite you know pair of shoes is it's it's he's facing a like a total epistemic he will be facing a total epistemic crisis and i i think when people go through that um it rarely looks like a volcanic shift with fireworks blasting on the horizon. It's often very, very delicate and things that cause people to rethink, you know, the life world that they're in. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't often look big. It often looks very delicate and small. The things that kind of tip them off, tip us off, that something's not quite working here.
1: Hmm yeah that's good
0: do you, so do you think that this is do you think that what Stevens is going through then is sort of the realization that something's not working or at the beginning of the novel he's already realized that and he's working it out where are we at the beginning of this novel in terms of his um, in terms of that process I guess that intellectual yeah. emotional mental process whatever the word is that you would use to describe
2: it i I think it's already started, but but as he's narrating it i he does not know that it's already started i mean the passage that Heidi read is like i you, i agree with you guys it's like it's the passage of the book. I think that this crisis has already started, but um he still is locating it as a professional problem an oversight he's not quite done his duty properly. and But if he had done that, then this problem would be solved. And I mean, at least for me, maybe again, I'm cheating because I know the story a little bit. I'm like, come on, Steven, come on, really? It's a professional <laughs> issue that you just weren't diligent enough about. There's something bigger happening here. Mm-hmm.
0: Do, so do you do you think that, uh, Heidi, I'll, I'll turn to you on this one. Do you think that Stevens is, I don't want to say dishonest, but do you think that he is sort of um, for uh, deceiving himself? I mean, in terms of what is actually at play in his own mind?
1: Right. Um, I, as someone who hasn't read it and I don't know the story at all, all I knew about this book before I read it was that there, it was about a butler. So I literally, I have no knowledge of this novel at all, completely blind. And I didn't read ahead. So I don't see as yet any awareness on his part that there is a crisis looming. Mm. I do see exactly what Tim is seeing, which is the ground the groundwork has laid for that, right? So, and I think we're all we're all attuned to that in people's lives. Like one of the principles when you uh, of Therapy of counseling is as the counselor, when you're sitting in counselor's chair, someone comes in and says, "I'm going through some kind of crisis, and I don't know why. What did blah blah blah." The first question you always asked are, "What are some recent changes in your life?"
2: Huh? Huh?
1: Always, right? Because crisis always comes from something. Like it never hmm. just appears out of the blue. It's hard sometimes to connect the causes to it. Nope you know, like sometimes you're not aware of this this thing happened and because of that I'm feeling anxious or angry or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, but it doesn't come in a vacuum.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. You're not like smitten with a crisis. Mm -hmm. So there's, so here I can see that there's, you can kind of see it where it just the craftsmanship of the writing has given us some, some clues, some things we're paying attention to, right? A letter from Miss Kenton. Uh -uh. That's a change. A new employer That's a change, right?
0: So Different staffing, different demands. Yes,
1: Yes. so there's these, Darlington is gone. He's clearly very attached to Darlington. What happened to Darlington? I have no idea, right? But clearly there's going to be something unfolding here that's going to lead somehow, going to be the roots of this. So I, I agree with Tim. I see that there's... The the story's building towards something, and the groundwork is already laid in the craftsmanship of the novel. But I don't I don't see any awareness, any evidence of awareness on Stephen's part yet.
2: So Heidi, I've got a this is this is so fun. I love what you said. You know, <laughs> like when someone sits down and they have a sense that something is changing. What's what's the question that you said?
1: Well, people will come asked. in for counseling and they'll say, I'm anxious and I don't know why I have insomnia and I don't know why I have this or that or whatever. I'm yelling at my kids. I'm going to, my husband just walked out on me, whatever. Yeah. So the first question you ask is tell me about some recent changes in your life.
2: So if, if Stevens the butler sat down with you mm-hmm. and, um you know he's kind of like yeah er, you know everything in my life is changing i um, i'm having trouble managing the staff at darlington hall and you asked tell me about some changes and his first line was it seems increasingly likely that i will undertake the expedition that has been preoccupying my imagination now for some days <laughs> right <laughs> like, that's what a do great you think that you would what would you think what would you think What's if that? you're the counselor sitting there listening to that
1: Right, a counselor who also loves literature. Right? Yeah, right. So now you're your, about to go on a journey, huh? <laughs>
0: <laughs> or would your suggestion have been to been what they, what his boss said to go on the journey? Because some, like maybe oh, you take yeah. a step further back that the 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 problem isn't that he's thinking about going on the journey. The the journey is maybe the the, the step that's because of all the other things that are going on. Maybe the journey is the thing. That, I mean, it seems his boss certainly says seems to say to him you need this you 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 clearly need a break um Mm -hmm. so maybe that's the thing that is the is the uh, antidote to whatever's ailing him yeah
1: right right well he seems aware enough to be able to know because i got this letter i'm going on my journey right but he's blinded Is is that how you
0: guys read that though no, because I got the letter. He's going, or how do you? Is that is that the? I just don't cause see the awareness.
1: You? I don't see the awareness. I don't see him connecting it. It's what, it's like unconscious revelation. Mm. Wait, so, so wait, course, you don't see craftsmanship of you, the novel. You don't, you don't right, right, see right.
2: the letter prompting the journey.
1: No, like I he, do I oh, see do. the okay. letter prompting the journey okay he he sees the letter as prompting the journey, but he doesn't have any personal he He's either blind or unwilling to admit that the letter is personal to him mm.
0: I think so the way I read it is that the letter is the thing that gives him permission to um abandon mm. his post not that mm. it's not a cause and effect so much as um, the idea has been put forward by his boss and then his boss says, I'm going to be gone. You might as well go for I like a while. that, David. And so he's trying to decide, you know, he, this is a man that's all about duty, right? Um, and I, that's why yeah. I think that the references to his brother in the war and um, the general right. and how, why his father hates the general that, or the, whatever the officer was that, that went to stay there. I think that that's a key part because what he's essentially doing is he's keeping a post, right? He's defending a post, preserving it. And Such right. like a that's the nature of his position. And so when he when he uh-huh. he doesn't feel like he can go, and so the letter is one of the things that gives him sort of emotional purpose, emotional permission to actually do it. It's mm-hmm. not that he needs permission from his boss because it's clear that he's never not that, that that's always something that's going to happen, right? Even when he's afraid that in the moment the guy's not going to give it to him, it's clear that he's going to give it to him. But if he needs yeah. to give he needs he needs to give himself permission to have a bit of freedom. It's not that he, his boss isn't giving him the freedom. And I think that that's a subtle, but important difference. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I see that. But of course he spends a lot of time justifying it and tying it to his duty, right? Because he's, he couldn't just give himself freedom. I mean, psychologically, I'm not fully, fully, I don't have a, like a total feel for this guy yet, but I mean, it's pretty, like I said, the craftsmanship just tells you so much about him in these first little two chapters before anything even happens. Mm. He is, but he has, somehow he spends a lot of energy in those first couple of pages, just if professionally justifying the visit to her. Whereas I'm just wondering, Mm -hmm. is this a man who... I mean, he's running to a woman for comfort. I don't know. Like, mm. is there some... Like, there's... <laughs> yeah, we don't know that yet. Right. That's my question. You know, question mark. Like, but that... I'm going to flag that one for later. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> I do think that, one of the, that, that the fact that he doesn't reveal that to us, that that stays a mystery, does add some emotional stakes, I suppose, to the reading yeah. of the novel. And it's a nice... Like, he could have just said... He could have revealed it earlier, but you know he he there is restraint in the way he's telling the story and the in the way he's revealing bits of information to us that's that's really well done.
1: Was she the housekeeper? Does he say that? She, I, don't, I don't. I can't remember
0: her exact position, in this section she, that he says, says
1: he says whether or not. Okay, okay.
2: But she'll well, end because- up being. It doesn't ruin anything. It, she'll end up being basically the female equivalent equivalent of the head butler.
1: Okay. The reason I ask that is a small point that I do know that housekeepers are always called misses, Even if they're unmarried. Uh And so the fact that he called her Miss Kenton made me think she was either a lower servant or that that was some kind of like Freudian slip. Do you Uh know
0: that because (laughs) you have uh, been watching so much Downton Abbey and the crown and, or is that just common knowledge among... Colorado. I mean, I Everybody learned at the same
1: that. place I learned about Newt. No oh, falconing uh, and Newt mating <laughs> and falconing. Yeah, yeah. Nice it's in my play. general knowledge encyclopedia <laughs> that I keep next to my bed so that people can call on me for trivia. <laughs> 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 hey, am I
2: supposed to refer to um, the housekeeper as Miss or Mrs. Call Heidi immediately. <laughs>
1: yeah. Heidi will know. know. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I do love the way he drops little things in like that. As if, because that's probably what a butler does. What you're describing there, right? Like they just have random information on stuff, and I so I love that he just drops it in there completely randomly. He's he's talking about um, his father, and he says, "I realize." He says, "My father was indeed the embodiment of dignity," and then he says, "I realize that if one looks at the matter objectively, one has to concede my father lacked various attributes one may normally expect in a great butler." But those same absent attributes are every time those of a superficial and decorative order. Attributes that are attractive, no doubt, as icing on the cake, but are not pertaining to what is really essential. I really I refer to things such as good accent and command of language. And then he says, you know, general knowledge on wide-ranging topics such as falconing and newt mating. <laughs> attributes so none rude. of which my father would have boasted. It's just like, <laughs> those two things are so specific. Like, they're so... So he's talking about language, a good accents yep. and language, oh, also falconing and newton mating. It's just yeah. the specificity of it is so funny and such it's such a good bit of characterization at the same time.
1: And it works on a meta level too because that's those are two things that Jeeves addresses <laughs> with Wooster in novels. So I, I just kept... Got, I kind of thought he was making a statement about what you think you know about English butlers.
0: So. <laughs> yeah, that would make sense that Ishiguro spent a lot of time or had a um, affection for the Wooster novels and would drop that in there. Yes. That's that as a little ode to people who, are a little uh, nod to people who love love the Jeeves and Wooster books. But right. uh, from a characterization standpoint, even the fact that he would be so specific, so it can be the meta nod that you're talking about there, but. Mm-hmm. That, 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 that such a specific thing would occur to him and, and mm-hmm. the way his mind works says so much about him in just one phrase, one very humorous phrase. And I, I yeah. love that about Ishiguro's writing. He reveals so much with so little, as, as all great novels do.
2: Mm-hmm. Hey, but I've got right. another... I'd love to read um, this yeah, story that the it. father tells. So on the my, tiger in my book, it's page 36. Is this the tiger? Um, the story about the tiger that the father is fond of telling.
0: Yeah, yeah. The story was
2: apparently true, was a, apparently a true one concerning a certain butler who had traveled with his employer to India and served there for many years, maintaining amongst the native staff the same high standards that he had commanded in England. One afternoon, evidently, this butler had entered the dining room to make sure all was well for dinner when he had noticed a tiger languishing beneath the dining table.
1: <laughs> languishing is like such a good verb there.
2: Like, <laughs> it's so funny. Like tigers languish. Only in like, <laughs> the English eye could a tiger languish. Okay. Um, the butler had left the dining room quietly, taking care to close the doors behind him and proceeded calmly to the drawing room where his employer was taking tea with a number of visitors. There, he attracted his employer's attention with a polite cough then whispered in the latter's ear, (laughs) I'm very sorry, sir, but there appears to be a tiger in the drawing room. (laughs) Perhaps you will permit the 12 boars to be used. And, according to legend, a few minutes later, the the employer and his guests heard three gunshots. When the butler reappeared in the drawing room sometime afterwards to refresh the teapots, the employer had inquired if all was well. Perfectly fine, thank you, sir, had come the reply, Dinner will be served at the usual time and I am pleased to say that there will be no discernible traces left of the recent occurrence by that time.
1: <laughs> it's perfect. It's so perfect. so good. <laughs> I love it.
0: Do, do you also have a, have a, have a passage like that? that you, it's our time to go through our favorite, our blue passages, right?
2: Yeah.
1: The blues, that's... I mean, that's definitely a blue. I do really like the story about his father. It's less funny, which again, I I just delighted so much in the writing. Mm. This, just the long sentences, the language, the meter. The clauses, the clauses,
2: the clauses yes. which I ordinarily yes. just like, oh, it drives me crazy. But I love how it creates this, um, the, there's the kind of music of Stevens is in all these clauses and long sentences.
1: Yes. Yeah. They're just beautiful. And so revealing of the thing, just this masterful connection of meaning and form, which that's what makes a great novel. So that I, I loved it. I, but I, I really, I don't know that I want to read it necessarily. Wait, hold on. If there's a, a, no, I do actually want to read it. Um, the, when he's opening the car door, for the drunken gentlemen who want him to drive, oh yeah, you around. gotta read that. That's the next story. Um, so I will pick up kind of a little bit through the you know these these two young gentlemen have gotten drunk and they want uh, Mr. Stevens' father to drive, who's also Mr. Stevens, I'm assuming, to drive them all around these three villages, um, and then they start talking negatively about the butler's employer. Um, And so he stops the car and he says, this view is contradicted with such energy that Mr. Charles, quite aside from worrying he would become the next focus of the gentleman's attention, actually thought himself in danger of physical assault. But then suddenly, following a particularly heinous insinuation against his employer, my father brought the car to an abrupt halt It was what happened next that had made such an indelible impression upon Mr. Charles. The rear door of the car opened, and my father was observed to be standing there, a few steps back from the vehicle, gazing steadily into the interior. As Mr. Charles described it, all three passengers seemed to be overcome as one by the realization of what an imposing physical force my father was. Indeed, he was a man of some six feet, three inches, and his countenance, though reassuring while one knew he was intent on obliging, could seem extremely forbidding viewed in certain other contexts. According to Mr. Charles, my father did not display any obvious anger. He had, it seemed, merely opened the door. And yet there was something so powerfully rebuking and at the same time so unassailable about his figure looming over them that Mr. Charles's two drunken companions seemed to cower back like small boys caught by the farmer in the act of stealing apples. Hmm. My father had proceeded to stand there for some moments saying nothing, merely holding open the door. Eventually, either Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones had remarked, are we not going on with the journey? My father did not reply, but continued to stand there silently, neither demanding disembarkation nor offering any clue as to his desires or or intentions. I can well imagine how he must have looked that day, framed by the doorway of the vehicle, his dark, severe presence quite blotting out the effect of the gentle Herefordshire scenery behind him. Those were, Mr. Charles recalls, strangely unnerving moments during which he too Despite not having participated in the preceding behavior, mm. felt engulfed with guilt. The silence seemed to go on interminably before either Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones found it in him to mutter, "I suppose we were talking a little out of turn there. It won't happen again." A moment to consider this. Then my father had closed the door gently, returned to the wheel, and had proceeded to continue the tour of the three villages. A tour, Mr. Charles assured me, that was completed thereafter in near silence. It was a long passage, but I loved it. I loved it because of the juxtaposition next to the pretty much purely funny story about the tiger. Yeah. Right? But then there's this story, which to your point that you made, Tim, earlier about don't discount Hit. don't just say this is a story about escaping because that's a lovely story. Oh,
2: it's so lovely.
1: That's just beautiful. Uh-huh. That is dignity. Everything he says about dignity. Absolutely. Every, everything like this, that the, the way that that father made that impression on his son and shaped and formed the rest of his life. That's, that's a remarkable man of character who did that. Yeah. And so it cannot be that this is just a story about escaping convention. Because of even just that powerful moment, juxtaposed next to you know, ha ha ha, the butler shot uh-huh. the tiger, uh-huh. right? So <laughs> that I just think is again that's that craftsmanship and the developing of the theme already in the novel and just these first couple chapters.
2: I'm so glad that you said that because I'm I was listening to you and I just thought, gosh, what what a testimony to like, to service to. Character, that silenced. <laughs> I mean, if, just, if you just put yourself in Mr. Stevens, the elder's shoes, what an absolute dilemma to be in. That mm-hmm. you want to be, you're absolutely in sworn allegiance to the master of the house. And here are these two gentlemen that are your social superior in every single way. Three. Um, that are your social superiors in every single way. What do you do in that dilemma? How do you say, this is unacceptable, I will not let you speak this way about the man that I have sworn my allegiance to? And both his physical imposing character and also just this kind of this dignity that he has, it allows silence to be the rebuke. It's such a beautiful... I love that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that's a, that's a great point that his persona allows this silence to be a rebuke because he has a certain gravitas about him. Yeah, That's possible for silence to be just as meaningful as if he had yelled at them or something like that. But it also allows him to rebuke them in a way that was um, without um, without breaking, I don't want to say the code, but the, the yeah. sort of tradition, the, the, but they, the, well, still, yeah, recognizing and honoring the hierarchy and the relationships and the things that were demanded uh-huh. of him, according to those sort of patterns. Um, and so one of the things I, I find interesting is these three stories that we've each read sort of set, set the course of the book in terms of Stephen's thoughts and reflections and one of the things that's going to be interesting one of the things that is interesting as we go is the way the stories that he begins to tell or the stories that he tells begin to change and evolve um mm. and, and the way they begin to um become evidence or support for different sorts of virtues and, and different things like that and or they call into question things that he's always sort of held dear and the stories within the story like the play within a play are yeah. i think mm-hmm. some of the most powerful parts of this book and then reveal the heart of the book i think um of course it's not surprising because it's a book about memory uh or at mm-hmm. least books surrounded by memories but when right. you guys when you let's let's think a little bit about moving forward here given where yeah. we are in, the, in this book um as we wrap up this episode so when you're this is a. We've talked about how this is a roadbook. You know, there are some sort of archetypal forms that it's paying attention to, but it's it's a roadbook about moving forward. That's tied to memory and all that kind of thing. What are the things that you're going to be looking for, and the things that are worth watching out for in terms of those particular forms? Do either of you have anything in mind uh, from that perspective? Huh. And then the other question I guess I have is while you're thinking about that, I'll throw another one out for you to think about. Um, is What is the, what do you see as the sort of central conflict of this Mm. book? You know, a lot of times by now in the first 40 or 50 pages, we have a sort of sense of what it is that this character, our protagonist is up against. It doesn't even necessarily have to be some kind of like real evil in every novel, but what is the sort of conflict, the, the tension, the stakes that, that are driving the, the plot or the, the, course of the novel however whatever word you want to put it given that some people would say this is sort of a plotless novel but you know what i'm saying
2: yeah
1: um i'll i'll take a a shot at the first one i think that question of what are we going to be looking out for so he's made several dogmatic statements about the nature of his society his role within it and his own personal circumstances that I am expecting to be challenged throughout this novel, mm. so I am looking for that. Um, the other thing that I'm looking for is the is an evolution in and, and this ties into the first thing, they're, they're together. So th- that would be the outside circumstance, right? I'm looking for things that happen either internally or externally that challenge those dogmatic statements that he has made, his own understanding, the narrative he tells himself about his own life and his own world. Secondly, I'll be looking for the changes in his internal narrative as he encounters that. And that goes along with what you said, David, which I loved what you just said, the nature of the stories that we tell ourselves, right? Like that, that is our internal life, the stories we tell ourselves, the things we remember, and then the interpretations that we make of Mm -hmm. those things and how they impact our actions. That is the internal life of a human. So I'm going to be looking for the development of that, and whatever feelings he's going to experience on the way because we already see he's very strongly believes in a disconnection of action and emotion we know that already right so what is he going to be feeling about those things is he um and is he going to be paying attention to that or is that going to come out as subtext Mm. so and how is how are those two aspects of him going to be united That's, that's the journey that we're hoping for. At least I am. How are those things going to be united? And I think that there's a meta narrative going on about England. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And so I'll, you know, I'm going to be looking for references then to, uh, to the society itself. You know, I mean, they just went through World War Two in the novel. He's talking about the thirties and the fifties. He's never mentioned the war. So I'm looking for, I'm going to be looking for references to that. That shook up the world, especially England. So those are, I think the things I'm going to be looking for. Mm.
0: Yeah. There's that whole section that we haven't particularly spoken about, but we'll come back to where he's talking about Mm -hmm. the landscapes and he's comparing it to the American landscape and that there's a sort of stiff upper lipness even in the landscape itself. And so tied to that is this question of what does it mean to be English? Um, and especially what does it mean to be English at that time, given the history and given what the future looks like it's going to be. Uh, and, you know, it is tied to the the questions that we're discussing over on the place, the thing about Henry, you know, what does it mean to be a king, but what does it mean to be the king of England in particular? Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's one of those questions that, any, any country is always asking itself. It's certainly something that American literature is always asking itself, but there is something very particular about English literature that I think is constantly asking itself. You know, characters are constantly asking themselves, what does it mean to be a representative of Great Britain, of a place that refers to itself as great, so to speak? Yeah, and he, he right. references that as well. Um, and gr- the question of greatness, what does it mean to be great, uh, is certainly at the core of this, this book for sure. And it's tied to that question of what does it mean to be English? Uh, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. bringing those things up is, is a great point. Tim, can I turn to the to you for this question of the sort of the stakes question, this conflicts question? What do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, You're good I on think... conflicts. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think if you ever told a playwright he was bad at conflict, it would be time for the playwright to get a new job. <laughs> you know, no, it would be time to write a play about yourself. yeah yeah,
1: right yeah good point
2: the passage that we read about dignity and the kind of ineffable um nature of dignity stevens has a terribly hard time defining it though it's what his entire life is lived for Mm -hmm. i think a good point so it, it made me think of this um Passage from this philosopher that Heidi and I have been talking about that apparently might get started up as a slow read Alistair McIntyre's book, uh, After Virtue. I don't think he says it in After Virtue, but in another place, he says, um, Beware when, every, when anyone uses the word intuition in philosophical writings. That should kind of basically set off an alarm that this person is smuggling in something. That just feels right to them, but that they can't really, they don't really have like a philosophical justification for. Hmm. Now, I want to say I am the biggest advocate of intuition as um, a legitimate leading light in a person's life. We function on intuitions all the time. It's, I mean, I think it's, it's reason in haste is what it is. However, if you can't define the very thing that you live your life for, it might be a sign that your intuition is sort of functioning on fumes. Hmm. And I think that that's what's happening with with Stevens, is that his intuition of what dignity is, is functioning on Hmm. fumes, not because he doesn't believe in it, not because like dignity is not a real thing, but because... it, that world is beginning to dissipate that world that mm-hmm. everybody knows what dignity is. We don't even need to define what dignity is. We all know what it is. Yeah. And so I, that's to me where I'm going to be looking forward. I don't mean like with specific references to that word dignity, but just where, um, Steven's affection for, and commitment to dignity are going to begin to uh, not have a justification anymore.
0: Hmm. I love that you, you mentioned that. So he he's all upset with his... Well, I don't know, maybe that's maybe overstating it, but he, he's having these debates with his his friend, and they're talking about dignity. And his friend says, Well, it's just something, it's like a beautiful woman, right? It's just, you just, you see mm. it, you know, when you see it or whatever. And he says, Well, mm-hmm. but there's this sense to which someone can acquire it, right? And so then he's spending all this time trying to explain and define it. And you're right that it's not. It's, creating a definition for it doesn't seem to be coming as easily as as maybe he, he intuits that it should. Uh, right. and, but So what he does is he turns to models, right? He turns to these stories of his father.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, and I think right. that yes. maybe
0: what you're getting at is that the models that you turn to when you define something like that are not as clear and are, are maybe not as available. And 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 so if the models are not there, if, if the cultural memory, if the sort of cultural Perfectly sense of the said. thing is gone, is not as clear, as clearly defined for you, then what's the next step? How do you move forward in terms yes. of defining those things and, and more importantly, living those virtues out? And so that seems... Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at That's there? That's exactly
2: right. Exactly okay. right. One of my favorite novels we've mentioned before is Walker Percy. And so much of Walker mm-hmm. Percy's writings have to do with a very similar kind of crisis. It's a crisis in the South, the world that I grew up in. And Mm -hmm. Percy's grandfather and father were both very decorated. I think they were both lawyers. They were, we would call them something like social advocates today um, for African-Americans. And both of them committed suicide. Mm -hmm. And Percy has this dilemma inside of himself. Why did they commit suicide? These men who are so, he respected them so much. And his culprit is so, I think, so similar to his dilemma is so similar to the one facing Stevens. And basically it's this, in the South, there was a Stoic moral code, kind of like Hmm. an echo of the Roman Stoic moral code. And Percy's assessment is that my father and my grandfather were living according to that code and they continued to live according to that code. Even when everybody else left the code, everybody else just jumped ship and said, "We don't believe that anymore." So these men, well, are and trying in some
0: to, way, the codes that code was even subverted by itself because of things like slavery. Agreed, absolutely agreed. That's that's something Percy kind of alludes
2: to. In his that's word. right. And so I think now Stevens is in a similar kind of. Let me say it like this: Dignity is among other things one can practice personal dignity but if you no longer live in a society that traffics in the currency of dignity and you're not recognized as being a dignified person and other people don't treat others with dignity then why then this like life world that you have constructed of the bricks of dignity what's going to happen to that life world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When it starts to fall apart, what's the individual who like, is maintaining that strong commitment to dignity? That individual is going to be very, very isolated, just like Walker Percy's father and grandfather were.
0: You're going to be lost at sea. Yeah. Yeah. The moviegoer, by the way, is on my short list of novels to cover on this show. Oh,
2: wow. Yeah. That's a tough one, though. Yeah. It's short, it's but... A tough um, but dense and 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 to your to the point that i'm making i think it's like in the opening chapter the main character's mother writes him a letter in which she quotes marcus aurelius in all things behave (laughs) even think as a roman would Hmm.
0: Hmm. um let's let's wrap it up here with some final thoughts i think we've i think we've um done a good job kind of getting into some of the themes here. I hope, I hope so anyway. Um, and, uh, I think we're ready to move on. So do you, either of you have any final thoughts that you want to, how do you, do you want to add anything to what we were just saying there before we go?
1: Yeah, I'll make it my final thought. And this is an unformed thought. So I'm going to be kind of stumbling through it as I say this. I wonder <laughs> if what you just said, Tim, and what you both just fleshed out, um, so profoundly about cultural memory is, I wonder if it's fair to say that Mr. Stevens is kind of a microcosm of that in one specific point of the hierarchy in England, in which the servant class meets the upper class, right? He's almost like a, um, like a liminal character in that way, you yeah. know, and in Shakespeare, huh. you're always looking out for those characters, which are the crossover characters like Viola who can, who is, you know, both a man mm-hmm. and a woman, both a servant and an upper class, right? Like, so those, this is, he is that character like a hinge between those two worlds mm. Funk knows how to function within them both and yet doesn't really know his own identity other than that's really interesting itself. Yeah. Right? And it strikes
0: me that he has to preserve the cultures of both classes.
1: Yes. Like think about when exactly you watch right.
0: when you watch a Downton Abbey, for example, the butler, I can't remember his name. Um he's spending so much time, he has to preserve the the culture of his bosses of the family it's his like he is the key person who preserves with the way they live but he also has to preserve the the cultures of the people who work for him and for him there is no real culture he's stuck in between them as you're saying and uh, that, exactly the existential conflict that that would cause in a person has to be um uh, pretty profound
1: Profound, right? And so, how do you do anything but disappear into the role in order to survive that? Especially if you're not a very self analytical kind of person. Yeah. Right. So that. Or you don't give like your, the,
0: yourself permission to be that way.
1: Exactly. Is yeah. That that a that's part of the role. Inborn and, and and so that like yeah. So as you guys were talking, I was thinking, wow, this that. Just exactly what you just said—the burden of both of those cultures in a completely transformative time in the history of that nation—he is like a microcosm of that, right? Yeah. So that that's where the personal meets the public in this novel.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I heard. I was. I heard someone talking about how the middle class is what preserves the culture because mm-hmm. when the middle class when the middle class fades as is what's happening in our country right now mm. the the sort of traditions of the culture tend to fade away because the the lowest classes can't have their finger or imagine an upper class and the upper class can't imagine or have empathy for the lowest classes and so the middle class is the one that's got at least a sort of imaginative sense of each class wow. because, yeah. because the perspective in which there's a sense in which they're not that far from being with a little bit of luck they could be upper class and with a little bit of bad luck, so to speak, they could be in the lower class. So they can imagine themselves in either. And so there's a, a sense of empathy that goes with that. And thus they're able to preserve the the elements that to sort of determine the culture of both classes. And it seems like a butler is sort of working in that same
2: way. That what a great yes. comparison, David. I never thought of that.
0: And, I, right. and that's not that's not me. That I mean, I've, I was reading about some of some talking about that. Um, I can't. I can't. But
2: finding can't Stevens much, but. as sort of like the representative of the middle class, that was really insightful. I had I'd never thought of that.
1: Well, and historically, those are the that's. I mean, look at the French Revolution, right? It's the bourgeois who's attacked first by both the upper and the lower class, right? Like, so they're the people who are looked down upon. Like they don't really understand you know, French aristocracy, Mm. but they also can't really relate to the little guy. And so they're left out of the revolution. Right. Like, so that Mm -hmm. is that, that both sides kind of turn on them historically, which is happening in America. Right. Who's those guys who voted for Trump. Like, right. Like that's this idea that the middle class holds the society together and yet is looked down upon for opposite reasons by each side.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I read that the Soviet Union spies of the Soviet Union that would infiltrate um, the U.S. in the 70s and 80s, their primary focus was like you can get the lower classes, you can sort of you can get them to you can like sort of work up a bunch of rabble like rabble rousers in the lower classes. But ultimately, like lower class rabble rousers don't really change a culture very much over the long haul. Um, Mm -hmm. So that they would they would focus on trying to sort of subvert the traditions of the middle class and convince the middle class. Of sort of certain Soviet values, and they would try to and they would at least try to break down the How values that were in the middle class. And that was a very strategic thing that a lot of the time they were trying to do in the Soviet Union, um, in terms of their sort of well, like
1: the icon. Americans, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. I say, it all comes back yeah. to that
2: show, the Americans.
1: Yeah. Huh. Well, this uh, is interesting. Unexpected no. turn. <laughs> so no,
0: no. Maybe it's secretly a spy novel, which speaking of being an advertisement for myself, um, <laughs> Tim, do you have any final thoughts before we go?
2: No, I'm great. This is a great discussion. I love this. Yeah, I think this is going to be a fun
0: a fun book to read uh, and, and to talk about. Um, like I said, don't forget about the uh, the coming level three of Lost Tools of Writing. If you have any questions about that, uh, go to losttoolsofwriting.com, find the Facebook group, or you can email us. Uh, you can email Matt Bianco, who's the director of the program, and his email is mattbianco at searcyinstitute.com if you have any questions about that. Uh, don't forget about everything else that's going on the close going on, on the Close Reads Podcast Network. We, of course, have The Daily Poem, which you can subscribe to. Uh, we also have The Play's a Thing, and as we mentioned, earlier, Heidi and I are finishing up our discussion of Henry V. We're actually going to be recording uh, later this afternoon, the discussion on Act 5. And then next week, we'll answer your questions. So make sure you post your questions. If you have those, I'll, I'll create a thread for that later today. Um, we also have Libromania, which is a new show. Uh, this week, we posted a conversation that I did with Jonathan Rogers Sam Smith, S.D. Smith, and Douglas McKelvey—three great uh, middle-grade fiction writers—we talked about their process and the anxieties of being a writer, all those different things that go into the writing life. It's a really fun conversation. I hope you will check that out. Last week, I did a, a sort of exploration of why *To Kill a Mockingbird* was named the most popular uh, novel in America, and next week mm-hmm. we are going to be running a investigation that I'm going to be that I've been that I've been working on into the science behind why. I guess it's the science behind why we love the smell of old books. What is it that makes that smell so appealing to people? And I'm just going to drop a little hint in here. It has to do with these, some of the things that we just spent the last uh, 30 minutes talking about. So, huh. um, Tigers? Some, <laughs> yes, specifically <laughs> tiger. There's a lot of... Um, there's been some work done. And, and one of the things... I'm going to be interviewing uh, somebody on Monday for the show who did a study on the smell of old books and they actually created what they call a smell wheel, which is like a color wheel. So there's all this stuff out there, all these studies out there about the preservation of smells and what that means for culture at large. So I'm going to be talking to her next week and on Wednesday, we're going to run that show about, and it's going to all be about like, why do we love the smell of old books? What is it that actually makes that so appealing to us? Um, So there's lots of great content out there. If you haven't subscribed to any of those, go find those feeds, subscribe to them on iTunes, Stitcher. Some of them are even on YouTube and Spotify as well. So you can, we've got lots of places you can find it. Make sure you subscribe up for the news, subscribe for the newsletter over at closereadspods.com. We're on Instagram, giving away stuff. Um, We are on Facebook, of course. You can join the conversation there. You can... There's lots of places to get involved with the network. Uh, we have a few uh, fun things that we're going to be releasing here soon. Some free things, some Patreon stuff. So we're really all in on getting you guys content. So thanks for being a part of it and for contributing to the conversations. And Heidi and Tim, thank you for being on the show. If it were, No one wants to just sit here and listen to me talk. So you guys make the show. <laughs> um, my mom might. My mom might listen to me talk <laughs> for a while. My she wife would. definitely wouldn't. But my mom might. Um, <laughs> So thanks to you both for for being on the show because y'all make thanks, the show uh, what it is. Thank
1: you, David. This is great. I'm yeah. excited.
0: Well, thanks to everyone who's been listening. So uh, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week and happy reading.